On this episode of the ElfQuest Show podcast, a conversation between ElfQuest creator Wendy Peeney and the Final Quest colorist, Sonny Strait. Welcome to the ElfQuest Show, the internet's only fan-made podcast series dedicated to the award-winning epic fantasy series ElfQuest, created by Wendy and Richard Peeney. My name is David Mizajewski, also known as my elf self, Thornbreak, and I've been an ElfQuest fan for over 30 years. So join me as we explore the adventures of the Wolf Riders and all of their allies and enemies on the world of Two Moons and beyond. Actually, it's just me, David, who's back. If you guys have been listening to the ElfQuest Show podcast over the last few years, you know that my co-creator, Ryan Brown, has decided to retire from regularly recording. But of course, Ryan, if you're listening, as I've said before, you are more than welcome to join me whenever you like. So, welcome to version 2.0 of the ElfQuest Show podcast. The original incarnation of the show that Ryan and I created was really to focus on each new issue of the Final Quest. And since the Final Quest ended back in February of 2018, we've taken a little bit of a hiatus, basically to let the impact of that story sink in for all of us ElfQuest fans, but also partly just to take a break and to figure out what the new version of the ElfQuest show podcast was going to be all about. So here are my thoughts. We're back, and I'm planning on all sorts of cool, fun stuff for this podcast, including interviews. I'm going to invite some other folks on to guest host with me from time to time. I'm also going to be doing episodes focusing on specific characters and doing a really deep dive on them. So my goal for this year is to try to get at least four episodes out, and we'll see. Maybe it'll turn out that there'll be more than that, but for now, that's what I'm going to shoot for. Before we get into the meat of this episode... I have a request. If everybody can go to iTunes or whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on and give us a like and write us a review, it would be incredible. Those things really help boost you in the searches and help other people find the podcast and get more exposure for ElfQuest. So if everybody did that, it would be incredible. Now for episode 38, we've got a fantastic show for you. It's an interview recorded between Wendy Peeney and Sunny Strait who was the colorist on Final Quest, and also illustrated some older ElfQuest stories, including Wolf Shadow and Troll Games and Soul Names. So without further ado, here it is. Hey everybody, how you doing? I'm Sonny Strait, and I'm with Wendy Peeney, the darling of comics. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I hope I'm the darling of something. Well, I'm the sweetheart of anime, so... There we are. (laughs) The darling of comics and the sweetheart of anime. Boy. Well, That's icky sticky. <laughs> this is the best beginning of any podcast. <laughs> uh, we were actually just having a breakfast at Starbucks, and we were talking about art and comics and thought, why don't we just record this, and somebody else might be interested in hearing about it as well. Plus, it's like 110 degrees outside right oh now. Oh, my God, it is vicious. <laughs> and so, you know, I left Texas to be in this hot weather. <laughs> So we had to figure out some nice, cool indoor things to do, and, mm-hmm. and so this is a way to kill a little time. Yeah, why don't we just make a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> but 
But what we, we were talking about, um, I, I I'd said that when I talk to my students, uh, I, our stock and trade as actors is to sell uh, emotion, mm-hmm. right? which is pretty much all art, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason why, I think, is because a lot of people can't express their emotions. Mm-hmm. So if you go to a movie or you read a really well-written comic book, it'd have to be ElfQuest, they can make you cry. Uh, then, you know, those that's relief that people actually need. So you're, that's the service. If you think of it as a, a, what service do you provide? Sure. But I also think... Or what service art pro- provides, provides in and of itself. Right. Yeah. But I think when you have entertainment, like stories, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's even more. I think you're providing longevity. Um, well, that's what fascinated me, and I think that's what triggered this podcast, because you said that through storytelling, you're enabling people to live more than one lifetime. Right. So, in, in essence, extending their own life. Wow. That's a concept. Right. But And then something like ElfQuest, which is practically immortality, mm-hmm. because it's thousands of years yes. to invest into it. Yes. Uh, you're, you're giving somebody something close to immortality. Those people who understand ElfQuest and get into it, I think... They may not, that may not be the reason that they're going into it, but that is definitely a benefit that they're receiving. Well, what, what I wanted to conceive and get across was the idea that if you were a being, you know, all of mankind has been aspirational towards immortality since mankind right. sort of transcended the reptile brain to a certain extent. <laughs> right. You know, since life became more than just bare survival. Mm-hmm. Mankind has gone through initiations to get in touch with its gods and its uh, its immortal longings, as Shakespeare said. Mm-hmm. So there are immortal longings in ElfQuest that, that I wanted to pull readers into and try to get them to see it from the other side, which is, what if you could live hundreds of years? Right. How tired would you get? How, how insane would you get? How insane would you get? Mm-hmm. Uh, what what would life amount to if it amounted to many, many, many human lifetimes? And also what types of personalities are best to survive that? Exactly. Like Lita has a good immortal concept of sure. reality. She can live it for a long life. It's ironic that she's the mother of memory mm-hmm. because memories and the inability to forget and the inability to just stay in the moment is kind of what beat Cutter down in terms of his tiredness after 600 years. Lita is now the mother of memory, but it's as if she's got a a hard drive where she can store that, but she doesn't have to access it every moment. So It's interesting that they would be polar opposites that way, but opposites attract. Oh. (laughs) But, yeah, Cutter Cutter has no mind for, for a long life. A wolf rider's life is short. That's what he was taught from the beginning. A wolf rider's life is short and sharp, and he liked that. Yeah. You know, he did did have this powerful urge to protect the lives of his people. Well, and Tamane's plan was to have that. Yeah. He is the realization of Tamane's connection to this world. Yes. So if you're going to be fully connected, well, that's it. Mortality is a big part of it. Yes, yeah, and which is why she took the gift back to the star home. Mm-hmm. She knew now. Now, in her hard drive, she possesses the gift of death, and and now right. high high ones who want to experience aging and dying as part of their 
their enrichment of the whole experience of being can come to her and say, I want to, now I want to experience this process. And death is a great uh, inspiration. And if you think about Cutter, he is the most inspired of all the else. Yes. Yes. But he's also the one who's most fixated on dying. Well, fixated on dying well, or, at least, or at least accepting of it. I would say aware of the yeah. possibility of death. He's also the one aware of time. And aware of time, thanks to Rayek. Right. Yeah. And when you're aware of time and you're aware of death, you go, i got to get some things done. Mm -hmm. If you're not, they're like, oh, well, I'll take my time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, at, you know, if you are, see, anyone who can live over 600 years by human standards is technically immortal. Mm -hmm. And how tired would that make you if, if your mind was more human than elf? Yeah. When, when Cutter said to Rayak, you made me human, that's what he meant. Mm -hmm. You gave me this awareness of the passing of time, and he knew he would never get rid of it. Right. Although he, he of all the elves, probably had the most potential to feel that anyway. Mm. You know, Rayak, Rayak certainly caused it by taking off with his family for you know, hundreds of years. But at the same time, Cutter had that. He knew from like it, a young age that his life should be short. Mm -hmm. He's a wolf rider. Mm -hmm. You know, it's dying wolves, You know, wolves yeah. live full lives but short ones. Right. So, it, of course, that's the way life goes. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You were also talking about something else. You were talking about um, we're, we're uh, drawing in poses and things like that. Yes. And, and um, you had said something about you like to draw... If you were an animator, you'd be drawing the in-between drawings. No, I, what I said drawings. was I turn in-between mm -hmm. drawings into key poses. Ah, that's yeah. a big difference. Yeah, for, for those who don't know the terminology, a key pose for an animator is the is the pose that you want a series of cells before it to get to. Right. It's where you want your character to arrive at, almost like a punctuation. Right. Of a movement. It's the end, beginning and end of a series of movements. Exactly. And the key pose, if it's really brilliant, like, again, Glenn Keane uh, style animator, a key pose will suggest to the audience exactly where the character will go into his next pose. You know, it's because motion is, is really, for the best of animators and cartoonists, too, it's really one continuous flow. Right. But, but my technique is is not to land my characters in every shot on a key pose that you can really recognize as a pose. I will pick an in-between pose, which is getting to the high point. Yeah, so and an animator would draw the beginning. Yeah. A, a key pose is the beginning and the end of that action. Yeah. But a tweener or an in-betweener is, mm -hmm. is, is someone who draws all the action it takes from the beginning to the end mm -hmm. of that action. Mm -hmm. You're saying you draw in between. You like that to be the key pose. Exactly. If, if, For example, if I'm drawing a shot of Lita dancing, mm -hmm. and I want to suggest as much movement as possible, I will put her into a motion where her skirt, her, her, her feet, her arms, her hair, are all about halfway through the motion that the I would... Mid-flourish. Mid-flourish. Before it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's its conclusion. So you, as a, a reader, become a participant in that, and when you see that, your your mind and your eye will tell you where her, her body was a few frames before that and where her body will be a few frames after that. So you get this powerful sense of motion and in one drawing. And what you're doing is enhancing what the art of comics really is, because the art of comics is... Uh, 
for the reader especially, is what happens in between the panels. Their imagination puts that in. <clears throat> what you do is add another element where their imagination even has to finish the flourish. Yes. Yes. That's fascinating to me. Yeah. Uh, and and it probably, I would think, a difficult thing to achieve. And I was asking you about, do you when you think about this, because uh, if I was going to do that, I would draw out probably three or four drawings that would be kind of emulating the tweens yes. to get to it, and then I would pick one from there. Now, when you do, do you draw out like little things like that, or do you just picture it in your head? Oh, no, but because this has always been an instinctual technique for right. me. I've drawn like this all my life. It's a very unique peony style. It's, it's just something in my DNA. If, if I were going to teach it, I would teach it exactly the way you just described it, you know, because I would want the cartoonist to connect with her butt. Well, the first thing I would have you do is, st if you wanted to draw a dancing Lita, mm -hmm. I would have you stand up and dance. Yeah. I would have you, feel you know, it. really feel it, you know, and, and decide what flourish, as you, that's, that's a very good term, you want her to end up in. Yeah. And and uh, then I would have you draw several drawings of her in motion as if you were animating her. And then out of that, you could, you would be able to pick the one that suggests what came before and what will come next. Well, you wouldn't have to tell me to do that because I'd have to do that. <laughs> I, I would, and I would. I would be standing up and trying to dance like her and trying to mm -hmm. feel it. Uh, because, and I, I mentioned this too, um, I, you know, I've been an actor since I was 14. Yes. And acting on stage is very natural to me and movement is very natural to me. But uh, translating that has always been a challenge into comics. Yes. And so, and that's, I think that's why I like comics more than anything is because of that challenge. But, but it, for, for me, that is something that's something I really have to work at. And you, yes. it seems to be just instinctive. Well, uh, it, but the reverse is also true. Theater is something I really have to work at. I mean, I've, I've had my own turn on the board. You're pretty you know. natural as Red Sonja. <laughs> <laughs> now, well, that, well, that came naturally because she was a channeling. She was, you know, that wasn't acting. That was a channeling. <laughs> that was escaping <laughs> from the world into another. No, she was there. She was, like, I could feel that persona so powerfully. Mm -hmm. And she 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 would come right through my crown chakra, and there was just no no denying it. But she resonates in a lot of the characters in ElfQuest too, yes. in a way, I, especially Cov especially Kavi. She landed Ember even to a bit. Yes, Ember Ember does reflect a lot of the Red Sonia personality, but not the um, I don't give a fuck. No, she certainly pardon, she pardon my language, guys. She certainly cares. Yes. Yeah. Whereas Red Sonia, I don't know if Red Sonia cares so much, but she's. Right, Sonia's very focused on warrior, being a warrior, right? She's focused on being, on surviving. True. I mean, her number one, she's very uh, uh, lowest chakra kind of character, which and the lowest chakra is red. Mm -hmm. So red, oh, red, right. red, red. You know, I, I know other people who have worked with the character haven't thought of Ember's this. closer to the crown chakra. Ember is, is orange. Oh, so she's still orange. in passion and... Exactly. Orange is passion, sexuality, motivation, right. uh, uh, drive to get things accomplished. I think she also resides Fire. in yellow a lot, too, because she yes. does have that, that courage and everything. Too. She's she's more of a, a golden girl. And, and uh, Where would you think Cutter resides? I mean, this is an interesting oh, question. Chakra positions for elves. <laughs> chakra positions for elves. Well, I, I certainly did all of that in Mask. You know, I, oh, yeah. I played with the chakras like mad in Mask, but I hadn't thought about the chakras in the elves before. I, I think of Cutter as gold. Gold is power. Yeah. And I, strength. P power and strength. <laughs> courage. Courage. Yeah. Uh, it's the gut. It's the hara. 
The Japanese say the hara. Right. Yeah. Well, and the throat uh, chakra is blue. Blue. Now, who would be the communicator? Wow. Uh, you know, what, what sprang to my mind, and this will surprise you, is Winnowill. Yes. Winnowill yeah. is always keyed in blue. It's dark blue. Dark, dark <laughs> indigo. Yeah. It, it, she's she's well, kind of an indigo. a lot of people, the, the, the crown yeah. chakra can either be white or indigo, depending on the culture you're talking yes. about. Yes. And so, in a way, she was seeking that enlightenment. Oh, yeah. Now, if she if she had not chosen her shadow side, she would be up there with Tamain and beyond. Right. But she certainly had the ability. She had the ability, and if only she knew that. If yeah. only, she, you know, but she chose the shadow and side. That's a character who sticks to her guns, though, as yeah. far as being, I'm going to be angry, and there's nothing you can do to change it. Well, weren't we just talking about people like that? I mean, not to bring politics into oh, right. this too much. Right. But people who make a choice, and then no matter what kind of logic or reasoning or even love right. that you bring them, they're gonna them they're gonna stick to their choice because they have to be right. Didn't Cutter say that to Rayek in that uh, the thing that uh, John Byrne uh, did the inking for? He says it doesn't matter. It was, nothing can change your opinion of not love, not not anything. That's that's in Kings of the Broken Wheel where yeah. he literally grabs. Rayak by the lapels if yeah. he had him. Uh -huh. And he says, why won't anything get through to you? Yeah. Nothing gets through to you. Not love, not, you know, why won't it stick? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. That, you think it ever sticks with him? I think he's changed. Oh, Rayak. He's the, changed quite a bit. By the end of Final Quest. Yeah. But you could still see that side of him there that he, he knows is there, and yet he keeps it in check, but he's got to keep Wenowell in check, too. So exactly. That's a full-time job. So he can't, Rayek can't fully transform and fully, fully uh, be his whole realized self until he deals with this hairball that he carries around. You know, she has could... to prove his love will fail. She has to prove that all love fails and is powerless. He has to prove to her that no matter what she does, his love won't fail. Right. That's their battle. Yeah. That's Rogue's curse. And do you think that that's an well, I mean, this could be a whole other story. This could be a story you tell in the future. It is a whether whole this other is story. eternal or, or not. <laughs> or this actually ends at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's that was a whole other podcast, like uh incomplete elf quest stories. <laughs> oh no. That's a podcast. <laughs> we'll never uh <laughs> You have to take it just for your own notes. <laughs> uh, yes, now Richard and I might you know, sit right. in a car or in front of a pizza and take notes with each other, but yeah. that's as far as that'll go. I can see people taking that as, okay, I'm going to make my own fan fiction now. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what we're hoping the fans are doing right now, you know, in this in-between period where we're doing the signing tour, and, uh, you know, people are not now receiving their bi-monthly fix. Yeah. You know, we're hoping that fan fiction is... Uh, They'll be filling in some gaps. Exactly. Yeah. May not be right. Mm -hmm. But you know, like I, I tell uh, my students, when you're when you're acting in something, a lot of times it's an incomplete script as far as emotional uh, motivation or whatever. Yeah. And I say it doesn't matter if it's right, meaning if that's what the writer intended it to be, because he didn't tell you. What it matters is that you have a genuine connection to it. If you have a genuine emotional connection to your read, then you'll have at least something that's worth listening to. There was a movie uh, Catherine Hepburn was in, and uh, the title of it is, escapes me, but it's about young women living in a 
boarding house, they're all actresses. And uh, Catherine Hepburn is the breakout one. She's the one that gets the break, and she's not really ready for it. And then something very emotional happens on her opening night, and she feels like she can't go on because she can't face it. And she gets this wonderful pep talk from an older woman who's been in the theater a long time, says, now, you, you know, you owe this not only to yourself, but it, it, to everybody here that's depending on you. Now get your ass out there. Right. And she does. And she goes off script and improvises and, and in this improvisation talks a little bit during her opening scene about the thing that has so disturbed and dis disrupted her. Mm. You know, a, a, a close friend has died. Mm and uh there's a little shot of the of the director and the uh scriptwriter in the wings and the director is horrified because she's gone off script and he turns to the writer and says that's not those aren't the lines and the and the screen uh, the script author says no but it's the feeling she's she's plugged into the feeling right. of it so you know yeah, that is the uh, the yeah. art of acting Yes, is when yeah. you when you put yourself into that. I always say that if you're trying to create a character uh, or trying to create a voice or whatever for a character, think about yourself in that body mm -hmm. and in that lifetime. How would you behave, and how would you sound if you had that? Even that physicality, like a lot of people say, uh, I do a lot of funny voices. Yeah. I don't do any funny voices. Uh -huh. Like I look at a face, and I, like I play a character called Andre, who's this giant head, and he's got a tiny little face. Yeah. So for me, if you have a tiny little face and a tiny little esophagus, you're gonna have a hard time getting words out. And he's very fat too. I hadn't thought of that. So I just look at their physicality and say, how it's a believable voice, and I think. So like, he's a Majin Buu type physical type. Yes. Right, with a tiny little tiny, face. Tiny little face. As people say, why are you trying to sound like Smeagol? I'm like, I'm not trying to sound like Smeagol. No, you're constricted. Right. I'm constricting my voice and my, my esophagus to wow. make it sound like he's got that physicality. Same with Krillin. Krillin uh -huh. is a little person. He's a little person. And little persons have an interesting way of, of air and, and their lungs mm -hmm. you know, would, would come out. And um, it's I would, little, I've always called Krillin a helium voice. He kind of is, yeah. but he's also a tough little person. Yes, he is. So he's got a little bit of that scrapper in him, Yeah. and so he sounds like a little person who's tough. Yeah. Yeah, and it to me is also, like, I just look at him and I see that's what the voice is, uh -huh. whether you like it or not. But but see, that's brilliant, and, and I can see why Toei treasures you. You know, uh, the, the Krillin voice in the original Japanese isn't necessarily like that, but, but again... The attitude. There we go. When we're, we're talking about the script. We're it, going back to mm -hmm. you captured the feeling of the, the character. feeling of it, but from my point of view. From your point of view, and even another culture can recognize that. And that's the only thing you can do. And if you're yeah. doing that, you're doing an honest mm -hmm. job of this, and mm -hmm. it's going to resonate more. Some people it won't resonate with because not everybody will relate to you. Mm -hmm. You know, just like with ElfQuest, not everybody reads ElfQuest. Oh no, uh, it's, there's a lot of stupid people. <laughs> <laughs> You're prejudiced. <laughs> but you, you, you are portraying a very on, probably probably the most honest work that I've ever seen on paper. Wow! And that that honesty, when the people who get it, they get it at a very deep level. Yeah, there. I I know there are people out there who would 
who would resonate with that and say yes. Well, and, yeah, your readers. Yeah. Uh, the people who don't read it, then, you know, you know, it's almost like... Um, well, they just see the surface. Right. That's yeah. true. A lot of people just see it. You know, the, the minute they attach the adjective cute to it, and, right. and in the interviews... Or we, effeminate. Or effeminate, yeah, yeah. yes. In the interviews we've been doing this year uh, uh, on our signing tour, that often comes up, the fact that, that there are people who still can't see past just the way ElfQuest looks. Right. But once they do see past it, they're like, oh, now I get the metaphor. Yeah, I knew someone who said that uh, he didn't read ElfQuest because to him, that's not elves. I said, what are elves to you? Well, they're very long and tall and elongated. And I said, they're in there too. Yeah. I, that's Elves have many forms in this story. Yeah. And you're just, you just don't know the story, you know, but those high elves exist in ElfQuest. Yeah, absolutely. Now, going back to, uh, because something you said sparked my mind, um, you have a movie that's going to be coming out. All right. In a few months, the where Bardock movie. you are literally the star of the movie, and talk about putting your your voice, putting yourself into a character. You know, I've, Bardock <laughs> is has always been one of my favorite performances of yours. Oh, thank you. Um, you you weren't even a dad at that time. Uh, if, uh, I don't think. Was I? I? I think I had just... But, but he's Goku's dad. Yeah. You know? And yeah. and in that moment, you know, that I always latch on to, this is from my crew to, to you. you. A captain isn't just a dad of yeah. his own child. A captain is a father to his crew. And given what was done, yeah. and given this is Bardock's last moment, that he's going to hurl everything at this terrible villain who did all this. Bardock is definitely the type that will kill you if you touch his family. Yes. And and, and that is his family. And crew, just like tribe, right. is family. You yeah. know, and, and in that sense, Bardock and Cutter are alike. But also, in a, in a sense, though, uh, Bardock's story is a redemption story because he, uh, the Saiyans are basically evil, destructive beings. Yes. They are, they are put on this earth to destroy planets. Yes. And... So he had that attitude as well. He's yes. like he didn't care about anything. He didn't care about his son. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were talking about his kid. Uh, oh, your kid was born. He was, yeah, that was a long time ago. It was like it was yesterday, right? Yeah. It was like oh, he can't see past this moment, yes. right? And then after this, <clears throat> this alien changes his uh, perceptions and he's able to actually see consequences. Yes. And then he becomes enlightened, or he chooses to go that way. And realizes there is a great evil here, and it's started by this one character. Well, and I'm convinced that's why Toei has chosen to release this. Originally, it was just released to DVD. I think it was VHS. Or, or VHS, and now... <laughs> it's and a long now, time ago. Yeah. yeah. But, but now, this long time ago thing is going to be released in theaters. Yeah. And um, I'm convinced it's going to do well, because it is a powerful story of redemption. But yeah. your performance, you are the star of this movie. And your performance is what's going to carry it. Well, thank you. That's not, I, I, and I look at it though, I, because that was so long ago. Yeah. You know, and, and you know, I I know how I've improved over the years. I would love to just be able to re-record it, but I look at it and go, yeah, I'm proud of what that rookie kid did. He did all right. <laughs> you you nailed it. I mean, you were talking about stories that make you cry. Mm-hmm. That one got me. Well, redemption stories do that to me too. Yeah. You know, I, I've had. A lot of brothers in my life uh, 
who've had some trouble and you know if I've actually overcome it. Uh, my my brother Robert in particular, and I love seeing it when somebody actually says, "No, this is not going to affect me like this anymore. I'm turning it around," yeah. which takes more than Herculean effort yes. to do so. Yes. And uh, but when that happens, it's the most inspiring thing there is. Oh, getting out of a pattern. Yeah. Getting out of a behavior pattern that. that what other dragons are there? The real dragons are those patterns we get stuck in. Yeah, exactly. So there's your source of drama in any story. Is yeah. is uh, uh, I, I, I always like to say in the interviews Richard and I do that ElfQuest isn't about good versus evil. It's, it's not about duality like that. It's about knowledge versus ignorance. Right. And, and self-knowledge, you know, when, when you have a character who's in a behavior pattern and then he learns something and transcends that that's the hero's journey yeah. is is by the end of the story he he and thus the audience is transformed he is he is more and different than he was when he started yeah and that and not all of i mean most of the stories the, the hero who's called is someone who deserves to be called but not all not all the redemption no. stories are the people who don't deserve it, sure, and yet are called anyway. I know, and accept it, but that's but that's called refusal of the call. You see, yeah. the, the antihero mm-hmm. gets the call to adventure and then and then refuses it. Right, you know the Han Solos. And things. The Han Solos, exactly. Yeah. I don't want that. I, I don't. I don't want to. Not here for your revolution, you know. Or Jimmy Stewart in, Vert, in Vertigo when uh, when the uh, murderer invites him in to, you know, start the journey of following his wife and journeys and and Jimmy Stewart says, I don't want to get mixed up in this thing. So he was definitely uh, a reluctant resistant to the call to adventure. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Something has to trigger your willingness. In Vertigo, it's the moment he sees her. Right. And he is so completely captivated by this sexual archetype that just inhabits his brain he becomes obsessed with her yeah. but but she is the trigger that makes him cross the threshold it's the adventures of a peeping tom <laughs> <laughs> no i think that's um rear window <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um you know the the reluctant hero the hero who doesn't want to answer the call something has to trigger him yeah yeah but and then there has to be a willingness to accept it at mm-hmm. some point. See, even Cutter became <laughs> the reluctant hero in ElfQuest. His six years in Sorrow's End, raising a family. Yeah. He the Wolf Riders would have happily stayed there. Sure, that would have been the end of the story. What triggered, what the trigger was, was those four humans crossing the desert, which made him realize there's nowhere that's safe. Right. These people who burn down our forest, they can even make it here. So that. That plus talking to his mentor Sava, because because often it's the conversation with the mentor that also helps the hero take the first step over the threshold and begin the actual quest. Yeah. So and then her mentoring, in which he learns for the first time that there might be other elves out there, and then he gets the idea: okay, if there are other elves out there. Let's go find them because there is strength in numbers. Right. So that's what motivates him to stop being reluctant about accepting the adventure and to take the first step. Yeah, because he was thrown into the adventure to begin with. Exactly. Fire in the forest. Exactly. 
by but circumstance. Fire, but fire created by humans. Yes. So anytime he sees humans, that's danger. Yes, exactly. He he, at in the early part of the story where he's just this young primal character who's really just focused on survival. Then for the first time in his life, he gets six years of peace yeah. in the Sun Village, and he sees that there's another way to live where you're not just scrounging right. for bare survival and living in fear. Yeah. That's a lot to leave and right. go on another adventure. But as the hero, he sees the signs. He sees the signs and the need. Right. Yeah. That's fascinating. <laughs> and yet he's such a natural hero. He's willing. Let me yeah, just put it that that's way. That's it. It's not that he's not afraid. He's, right. he's often afraid, but he's willing. Because other people could get the information and go, Yeah. I, I just, that's too much effort. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Why should I? I mean, there's a whole tribe of people there that could have said this, came to the same conclusion. Yeah. But one person went, Hmm, maybe we should do something. Yeah. Exactly. Because he connects the dots. Yeah. You know, the Sun Folk had lived for centuries, eons, in their. They're safe. The only danger they faced was the occasional Zwoot stampede. <laughs> well, you've told me many times that the hero and the villain have to want the same thing. Yes. And in Winnowell, she also wanted to find all these other elves. Yes. But for different reasons. To take them back to the stars in their purest form. Yes, exactly. And the wolf riders. Under her control. Exactly. And the wolf riders being impure had to go. Right. They would. They couldn't be a part of it. No, no. You, you know. Would Widow Will accept Skywise? Because now? Skywise, yeah, he's been he's been changed, or because he was began as a tainted being. Uh, as a healer, she'd be able to sense whether he had wolf blood or not. Right. I I sincerely doubt if Widow Will were to encounter Skywise now, if she'd even be able to recognize him right. in his highwise. Highwise form. Highwise form. <laughs> now you're saying it. <laughs> well, you got me started. Highwise. <laughs> That's but, what I nicknamed. But yeah, in his in his high one form, mm. she might just bow down to him and say hello, brother, because she wouldn't recognize him. No, what if no... she found out though? Do you think she would be going? Would it change her? You think to see that this came from something that she despised? Well, remember we talked about attitude and being locked into attitude and needing to be right. Yeah. You know, the reason Winnowell remains a dark character is that she needs to be right. So if she, if she, now this is fan fiction, but if she were to encounter Skywise in his high highwise form, <laughs> and and not, I'm glad that's sticking. <laughs> And not recognize him. Yeah. She, no, no wolf scent on him. Nothing like right. that. Um, she, she would say hello, brother, and kowtow to him. And then if she were to find out mm -hmm. it was originally Skywise, you think the prejudice would come back? I think the prejudice would probably come back because yeah. she can't be wrong. Which she, is a, a kind of reflective of what's going on in today's society. It's like if you get, you could get to know someone of another race, yes, and and get to know them as a human being, yes. Right? And then all of us, but but because of their skin color, whatever that, or their politics, their politics, right? They're yeah. suddenly just you're closed. Oh, you're connected to that. Yeah. You know, forget, forget you. Forget you. You're done. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. Because, because pride. Yeah. Pride at the bottom of it, it's pride, and at the bottom of pride is fear. It's going to take a lot of love to fix what's going on right now, Whew. and probably a lot of sword play. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Richard and I started. ElfQuest in the middle of the hotbed of the the um, 
this, this sort of enlightenment of America. We, we, we had Roe v. Wade. We had the hippie movement. We had the end of Vietnam. We had the beginning of the New Age movement as well. We had the beginning of the New Age movement, uh, metaphysics, um, uh, the awareness, the, the strongest, uh, one of the strongest awarenesses in the mid-70s was population control. Yeah. I mean, forget this big argument. Of, I mean, abortion was considered a blessing almost. You know, Norman Lear was doing stories on, on All in the Family and Maud yeah. about how the benefits of abortion because, you know, maybe now is not the right time to have a child. We were aware of overpopulation and, and people, you know, there was definitely a decline in the population because people, people were not... It really and, was the dawn of Aquarius. Yeah, period. it was. Hair came yeah. out, and and um, we were awake. We were we were waking up. And, and we were talking about that earlier too. How like yeah. fashion was reflected in that. Yes, the, the colors of the eighties were oh. amazing, oh. and um, the not only but the music as well. I mean, yes. they were they were trying things they'd never tried before. Yes, um, until it with seemed, real skill with, with yeah with the real skill of artists, they didn't have all the technology to assist them and tweak them. Yeah. What what you got was the raw, rough inspiration expressed in music. Yeah. Yeah. And you can laugh at a lot of it as time's gone by, like the costumes and stuff that we all wore and everything. Oh goodness, the Jackson Five. Oh I, I had I had yeah. a coat that you roll up the sleeves. It was like a white coat with a checkered pattern on it. Yeah. You roll up the sleeve it's black and then, and the pads on the shoulders went out for days. Oh my God, yes! <laughs> oh my God, yes! And a, I love that coat. A '70s zoot suit. It was a '70s, '80s zoot suit. An yeah. '80s zoot suit. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. Uh, but the thing is, though, it was trying to find that raw expression, mm -hmm. trying to express things to the fullest. Well, and we were braver. Mm -hmm. We were we were as artists. As, as you know, the independent comics movement. Oh yeah, we were it all exploded in that. Time. It, we, it exploded because it, we we had we had nothing to lose. Mm -hmm. uh, nobody was really telling us no. I mean, you, you know, sure there would be naysayers and say, yeah. oh, you know, you, that's not going to fly. Well, uh, you were know. certainly a trailblazer in that too. Yeah, and an inspiration of people to look up and go, oh. I don't have to tell a comic book story about superheroes. I can do whatever I want. We weren't we weren't laden down by too yeah. much knowledge of what we were doing. We didn't know much right. about what we were doing. I mean, there were like the underground comics of Robert Crumb and things like that. Yes. Um, but the thing about that, that's underground. Mm -hmm. What you produced was something that could be polished and considered on a mainstream level, but it's not a mainstream sentimentality. It is something that's uh, very unique and original and is high art. But has this polish that you would see at the big two as Marvel and DC. Well, that uh, that again, you know, going back into your world and your realm, I, I attribute that to the manga and anime influence I had, because manga and anime compared to American cartoons and cartooning, yeah, the manga and anime went into places that that Americans self censored about, right. Don't get too emotional. Don't get too emotional. Don't ever touch sex. Right. And characters don't die in animation. Right. And and and. I don't even think superheroes have penises. Yeah. <laughs> they certainly didn't have bulges back then. That's true. <laughs> uh, yeah. But 
But, you know, if and if you are going to do a semi-realistic cartoon like the Marvel superheroes or whatever, it's always got to be good guys versus bad guys, good versus evil. Right. And the good guys must always triumph in the end. That's, that's what it was all about. With anime you had and manga, you had subtlety. You had characters of enormous complexity and emotional yeah. damage. You know, emo. I mean, good God, emo came from... <laughs> Anime and manga. They always say that, that Will Eisner, he coined the phrase graphic novel. Yeah. And so a lot of people attributed him to creating the graphic novel. But mm -hmm. if you think about Tezuka, Ugh. he was doing graphic novels for a long time. Tezuka, there was an amazing exhibit of original Tezuka pages at uh, Angoulême this year really? in, uh, in France. And just walking through it, you know, seeing my sensei's work. You were there at the time. Was, was that intentional or just happened to be lucky? It was. It was the, the most marvelous coincidence. That, oh, that's that, amazing. You know, just walking through this exhibit of Tezuka sensei's work. And this is the work of his hand. Yes, you could see the whiteout. Yes, you could see the pencil strokes. Yes, you know, his inking style. And as I walked through it, and Richard was right there with me, and he kept saying, all of this is you. You took... You took your inspiration and your style. I can see from the layouts how he invented stuff that had never been in comics before. He yeah. invented ways to lay out a page of, of artwork just shattering the borders and, and going right off the page. He invented that. Nobody was doing that before Tezuka. And I remember seeing that in your work, like broken <laughs> panels and things yes. like that, that I'd never seen in any other comic at that time. Yes. Is that where that was coming from? Totally. Yeah. I got that from Tezuka from, um, I would say mostly from his Phoenix saga. Yeah. Talk you know, because he just... series. Phoenix was his... How many volumes is that? Thing? Eight? Oh, boy. It's, I think it's eight volumes. I think Huge. it's eight volumes. And, and, it's, and it's his work about immortality. Right. You know, this is where Tezuka and I resonate. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the highest compliments I ever got paid when ElfQuest first came out was that there was an article in a, in a Shonen Jump-type magazine that featured ElfQuest, the, the cover of issue number one, and the, uh, the tagline on it was, An American Tezuka. Now, there you go. That was yeah. one of the greatest compliments I've ever received. What, what, do you, what else do you need at that point? Yeah, I might, it's, it's might like as well have died at that mission point. Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. <laughs> Full circle, right? Uh -huh. You know, because they saw. They yeah. saw. Um, but yeah, I got that. I, I learned my from both animation and from manga. Yeah. I learned great freedom of yeah. expression and how you know layouts don't have to be just your your linear six panels per page. You don't have to stick to that. Yeah. You you can use the layout as part of the telling of the story. Say for instance, you're doing a sword fight. If you shape your panels like blades, right. You know, slashing and clashing against each other at, at odd angles. Right. You only add to you. You make the you make the reader hear the sound. Right. You know when you're. Or drawing, you did like a, a panel layout and you see the panels, but they look like they have cuts in them. Exactly. And that's how they're divided. By. Or 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 the borders are crossing and you can see the the pointed end. Of so you the, hear the clang. You can hear the clash and yeah. the clang of this because you want it to be a total sensory experience. You you right. really want. The reader to hear the music behind it. You you want them to see the movie. You want them to hear the sound effects. And you do that a lot, but you don't. It's very subtle. 
You know, it's just it's more of a subconscious resonance that people get from it. It's not like obviously you're drawing swords, but you were you shape it in a way that's sword like mm-hmm. enough that subconsciously they they really feel it. Well, one of the more famous bits I did long ago was uh, when Skywise cuts the thumb off of the thief, and and it's a series of I think it's five panels and they're all curved. And and yeah, he whirls around samurai style and then cuts the guy's thumb off in the last panel. Yeah. But the the reason for the curve of the panels is to give that whoosh. The curve of the panel follows the the line that I would draw the speed line mm-hmm. of him bringing the sword around and whoosh cutting. cutting this might the be a different off. one I'm thinking of, but the one where he was essentially was going to die before you changed your plans with yeah. him. Is that the same scene? Yeah, well, that's in that story that, where, where right. he goes over the waterfall with mm-hmm. the thief because the thief has a hold of the lodestone. Right. Yes. So that's the story where we would have lost Skywise, but we didn't. What's What I find fascinating about this, and I mentioned this before, that in, maybe I said it in Line of Beauty too, when he was, that moment, you had originally intended he was going to die. Yeah. And then you and Richard decided that he was going to live. Oh, no, Richard Richard decided, decided Richard and said, told no, he's living. my ass uh-huh. that Skywise was going to live. <laughs> but if you look at, like, that, the great thing about series like ElfQuest that lasted 40 years is mm-hmm. you can see how your art's developed over the years. Yeah. And you can see the decisions that made you decided to go this way instead of this way with yes. the style, right? Sure. And... The interesting thing about that page, if you look at the page before it and the page after it, it's of that period of your drawing. Yeah. That page is what you draw today. I'm almost to the style that you draw today. Yes. It's almost like by changing the fate of Skywise, yes. you change the course of the whole structure of your story. I think that's a brilliant observation, and I think it's exactly right, because if I remember correctly, that was issue nine. Of of ElfQuest. That's pretty early on. Uh, Pretty early on, and uh, I do remember, it's kind of locked in my mind, is that issue nine was the turning point Mm -hmm. of the of the telling of the story because after that it became a buddy story. Right. You see, Cutter set off on his quest, and Skywise said, "I'm coming with you." And in a way, solidified your buddy story with Richard too. I would say so. Yeah. I would say so. Yeah. Uh, Okay. We're in this together. Yeah, yeah. And um, uh, David Goyer, uh, who is one of the people uh, in the movie industry that that, uh, had a real strong appreciation for ElfQuest, said, uh, the way I see it, ElfQuest is a love story. And we were like, okay, yeah, you know, Cutter meets Lita. No, this is a love story between Cutter and Skywise. And the fact that he got that, you know, Richard and I just looked at each other and smiled. You know, it was like, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Because you've said many times that that you've reflected yourself in Cutter. Yes. And he reflects himself in uh, Skywise. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's very obvious. And Skywise is, is for for the rest of the story, from that moment where where Cutter saves Skywise's life and Skywise and he bond into a buddy story. Yeah. Then Skywise fully fulfills his function of keeping Cutter on track. Uh, and at what point did you solidify the entire structure of this? I mean, you you said twenty years ago you'd drawn the ending of yeah. of Cutter. Yeah. And um, but but at what point did that 
that was it round nine that you went, oh, I know where this is going now. This buddy story. At at by issue nine, we knew where the ending of the first four volumes would be. Quests end, and the and the war, and the achievement of the palace. We didn't know exactly what our future was going to be because because I I put off some some surgery that I needed oh, to yeah. finish the first four volumes. Right. And then right after I finished them, you know, like within weeks, I was in surgery to take care of. Um, and then you came back for. It was. It, it took two years for me to come back, or almost two years. And you came back. That was Blue Mountain. That was no. That. Oh, pardon me. You're right. Siege at Blue Mountain. Right. You know. Which is really where Elfquest starts to rock, in my opinion. It's like it's like you see it. The art just it's like. You can tell that you were that you decided this is it. Now I'm going to kick ass. I've been uh, pent up for too long. Now I'm going to really kick ass with this. Well, it's interesting you should say that. That's where ElfQuest really started to rock because opinions were divided when mm -hmm. we brought it back. Opinions were anything from, uh, oh, you inked by Joe Staten represents a low point. You know, I'm done with ElfQuest. Wow. Yeah, they did not. Uh, there were people who did not did not. But like, Staten's a horrible. Oh, right, <laughs> right. <laughs> and also, I changed the characters' costumes. I brought them into an '80s vibe. They were kind of punk. Yeah. And because I wanted them a little more badass at that. Well, point. yeah, you gave Cutter a haircut in that yeah. series. Yeah. yeah, and I gave a very good excuse for how he got it. And you know what? <laughs> yeah, that was a good story. His haircut <laughs> hanging naked from the tree. Uh, but that's one of my favorite parts. As one of my favorite story arcs, and I know it's it has a dated '80s thing to it. But that's yes. what I like about it, yes, because it really encompasses encompasses that feeling. Yes, and if you want to know what it felt like in the '80s spiritually, yes, read those books, that part of the series. Well, I think you're the first person to ever say that. Uh, put put the siege uh, storyline into a historical context. Well, the historic his uh, spiritual historical spiritual historical context. Right. Uh, it might have been reflecting what was going on at the time as far as, you know, what was going on in the world. I don't know. But I do know that spiritually it feels like, it felt like that in the 80s. Oh, it was reflecting what was going on in the world, all right, because we were experiencing a huge change in the comics industry at that point. Mm -hmm. We were experiencing the black and white boom. Right. Uh, ElfQuest had been off the shelves for almost two years, and, and we experienced the halving of our audience. We were no longer selling a hundred thousand copies like we were when we, you know, at the end of the the first four volumes. Right. When we came back, we thought we were going to come back with a, a bang, and it was a little bit of a whimper. It was a, it was a lesson to us that if you go away, if you're out of the public sight, right, you're, you know, as much as your readers say they love you, you're going to lose them. What do you think maybe part of it was attributed that comics in general were selling less at that point? or I don't know if comics were selling less, but I think the boom of the black and white market, you know, yeah. where there was, we were competing for shelf space, mm -hmm. which we didn't have to before. Right. Um, and we yeah, changed... It was pretty much just Marvel in DC yeah. and ElfQuest. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a few independents like Cerebus. Oh, Cerebus too, yeah. Sure. We were told by, I think it was Diamond told us, or, or maybe it was a number of distributors, because Diamond wasn't the, the monopoly back then, but it was, it was getting there. Yeah. 
we were told uh, you have to size down to uh, normal comic book size. That was another factor in, in the drops in our sales because our fans had gotten spoiled rotten. With that magazine size. By the magazine size. I um, remember that magazine size. I remember yeah. the first time I saw ElfQuest. And I was like, I think fourteen. Yeah. And uh, it was a friend. I was at a friend's house, and his floor was carpeted with comic books and magazines, and Playboy magazines. And uh, <laughs> he was in the restroom, and I was looking around. I went, "What's this ElfQuest thing?" You know. And it was a magazine size ElfQuest. Yes. And I'm flipping this. This is so cool, you know, because it's a magazine that's a comic book. Yeah. Right. Well, at thirty-two pages, magazine size coming out three times a year, you really felt like you were getting a chunk of something. I mean, even though the You're fan- also able, you were able to go into this fantasy world easier. Oh, yeah. This giant panel that you could just dive into. Yeah, magazine size, you know, uh, definitely informed the mm-hmm. artwork. It's probably similar to what people felt when they used to read old newspaper comics where they took up the whole page. Yes, I think so. I think so. So, so I think... Our change in size to normal comic book size disappointed a lot of people. Just Were people disappointed when you went to Marvel? Or did you just find new audiences? That's a fascinating question because going to Marvel was a huge boon for us. Right. It gained us an entirely new audience because Marvel got us onto newsstands. Marvel got us into places in color yeah. that we hadn't ever been before. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the sales were awesome, you know. They, they contracted with us to read. You never got any letters from the hardcore fans who went, no, I want you in black and white in I'm, a magazine. I'm sure we did. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, back then, receiving input from the fans, Richard didn't... It wasn't sh- as easy to get input from fans back then, too. There was no Twitter or MySpace. No, it was just letters. Yeah. You know, there was no internet. So they really had to work if they wanted to troll. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And sure, we got, we got a certain amount of, of critical letters, but... At the time, Richard Richard dealt with that, or he had staff deal with letters, and um, I didn't see a lot of it. If he thought a letter stood out that would be really cool for me to see, he would show it. But he kind of, he just wanted me to concentrate on the work, and he didn't want me to get too involved with God the fans. God bless him. I was ahead of Richard. <laughs> <laughs> well, it took me a long time to learn praise and blame all the same. Yeah. Well, yeah. you told me that, too. When, yeah. I, when I was an apprentice to you. 2001 yeah i was looking at the computer and i was looking at all this criticism about dragon ball z which was still kind of new and we were basically funimation has ruined animation and anime and things like that and i was just looking and she's you just saw that i was looking dejected and said what's what's wrong and said all these criticisms and you went never believe criticism either positive or negative because if you believe the positive you're going to rest on your laurels laurels and if you believe the negative, it could stop you in your tracks. Did I, I really like, say that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not bad. I, I, I live by those words today. Yeah. So, by F them. Well, it's, even when you yeah. and I were working together and, and um, there, were, there were points where I wanted to direct or, or critique something you'd done and, and take it up a notch. Yeah. You know? At first, uh, I tread very delicately because, yeah. because you were sensitive. And we, ha- we had one day... Where that happened, uh, I don't. I don't ever remember getting mad at you or anything like that. But I. But I remember saying, "You're going to need to redraw that figure of Moonshade." Mm-hmm. And then when I came back out, you were just sitting at your desk, with your head down, and, I, and I'm like, "What? What?" And you were like, "I suck." 
<laughs> and I, I was like, I lost it. I, was, I said, are you out of your mind? You're doing an incredible job, you know? And It was the way uh, she stood. Yes. And you said women don't stand that way. That's right. And I just did not figure that. And then also, I was drawing very tight. You were then. drawing tight and, and you needed to get an S-curve. You needed you know the you line did, of though? beauty. Do you what? remember? You took my hand, my drawing hand with a pencil, and you just loosely went like that. Draw like this. And with you, your whole with arm. With your whole arm, right? And, and I was like, I never even thought of it that way. Okay, now you guys can't see it, but Sonny just grabbed my hand <laughs> and dragged it through the air in, in beautiful circles. I'm an actor. I have to express everything <laughs> through body. <laughs> but so was that the moment that I told you about drawing with your whole arm? Yeah. Yeah. What a transformation it made. Yeah, it changed everything the way I drew. We were on. working on Wolf Shadow mm -hmm. when that happened. Yeah. And uh, and Moonshade figured as a strong character in Wolf well, Shadow. Well, she was she was telling uh, Sky he was punishing Skywise. Yes. And making him skin uh, uh, the yeah. leathers. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and the way she was standing. Right. Had to be changed, and yeah. so th that whole conversation came out of that one figure. And then when I redrew it. Yes. With the way I was supposed to, with loosing, he loosened my whole arm loosely. He came in and went, that's it. That's how I should, she should stand. I was like, oh. And it was just like my mind exploded for a minute. You know? But also, there was so much concentrated information in that year. I mean, you every day you were looking at a page I drew and you say, this works, this does not work, and you told me why. And I would I took it in, right? But it was too, too much to fully realize. And I... Years after that, I would go, oh, I need to do this, right? Because it was something that you had said years before that. Wow. Well, I remember you telling me when we first met, and I think we should tell the story of how we first met because it's really magical. Well, at Comic-Con, the place of magic. At San Diego <laughs> Comic-Con 2000, by some miracle, the Funimation booth and uh, the Warp Graphics booth were slap up against each other. Yeah. And Funimation, in its usual desultory way, had not. <laughs> yeah, they had had not provided any space on their table for the four actors to sign autographs. On. It was just full of merchandise, and unbeknownst to me and the rest of the actors, we were out having lunch. Uh, the guy running his booth asked Richard, I think, if, if we could sign in his area, set up a table and sign in his area. Yeah, in other words, use Warp Graphics table. Right. For the actors to sign. No, Can you believe I, the audacity of somebody asking that today? I, mean, I knew because I went to, to Comic-Con year, for years as a cartoonist. That's expensive real estate. Yes. <laughs> and I believe Richard's uh, response was, hell no. It might have been at first, but you see, at the time, I was a major Dragon Ball Z fan. Dragon Ball Z was on every afternoon, uh, and I religiously followed it, and I was a fan of Sonny's. So when they asked if the actors could sign, I was I was like ready to punch Richard. I was like, hell yes, you know. So you. But so, we we showed up. We yeah. were running a little bit late because we didn't figure out the crowd that we'd have to go through. Yeah. And so we were told, hurry up, sign, sit down here and sign. So we're just we're by the the Funimation table. That's all I saw. We're sitting down. I didn't even see the warp graphics right behind me. Yeah. And I'm signing, and it's just nonstop. And then. Uh, I hear people keep saying Wendy Peeney, Wendy Peeney over and over. I'm like, why are they saying, is she around here or something? Because I've been a fan since I was 14. And somebody said, dude, she's right behind you. <laughs> and I turned and looked over my shoulder. And, and you I'm were, like, hello, waving at me. 
and I just I just regurgitated fanboy all over her, and, yes. and I said, "What a big fan!" She goes, "Well, I'm a fan of yours," and I said, "Shut up." She goes, "No, no, no. I re I love Dragon Ball Z," and I'm like, "Please." She goes, no, "No." And then I started telling Sonny and Sean that Dragon Ball Z is a retelling of the Monkey King, and both your eyes got like saucers because you guys didn't know this. We were fascinated by this and what it was its connection and and the meaning that that we didn't even understand at the time. That's right. Um, and then you guys told us, you had told me what had happened about the signing and that we were signing here for that reason. And I went back to my room that night and I knew what a gift that was for you guys to allow us to do that. Mm -hmm. So I drew a picture of Cutter yes. looking at Krillin, Gohan, and Goku, yes. and Vegeta. Yes. And then I gave empty voice balloons for the voice actors who play those parts to personally thank you. Yes. Oh my gosh. And as a Dragon Ball Z fan, may I tell you I was... On Goku's <laughs> cloud. <laughs> well, I was on a cloud that whole weekend. And when I gave it to you, you said something about this is like one of the most on-model drawings I've ever seen yeah. of Cutter. And I asked you if you'd used ref reference, and when you told me you hadn't, I was like... <gasps> and then you said that, uh, you just bluntly just said, would you like to work for me? And the floor vanished between moving my feet. <laughs> And I was suspended in midair for about a century or two. I came back Sunny the White. And, and I was like, is that a trick question? <laughs> yeah, I would love to work for you. <laughs> I would have never even imagined that that would happen. And uh, that, was, that was how we met. Yes. But I went home and um, I realized this is a better opportunity than I thought even mm -hmm. I could even imagine. And, and I felt that my artwork had hit a ceiling. And so I said that I wanted to change the terms of our relationship on this. And you're like, oh, do you want more, more money? And I said, no, no, I want to be your apprentice. And you said, you know what that means? And I said, I do. And you said, okay, then move to California. That was a moment because I had never taught anybody. I had never been, for lack of a better word, a master teaching an apprentice before and uh, that's why I asked you do you know what that means because I was really asking myself yeah do I know well, what it means that means? we're gonna be tied we're gonna be tied for life yeah you know whatever you take from me has to be the best I have to offer mm -hmm. and I can't if I take on the job I can't fail because that's the mass master apprentice relationship mm -hmm. that's what the master owes the apprentice and how do I know what's my best you know I had to I had to look yeah and say what if you know what if I can't make the, the right choices as to what's the best to give him how and and because he has his own drawing style how much do I shape that and how much do I leave him to his own independence because you don't dare a master can pass on the good techniques a master knows, but if the master crushes the right. apprentice with his, with the strength of his ego and says, my way or the highway, right. that's not a good teacher. Although I was very, so. very willing to be a student at yeah. that point, because yeah. I, I, I realized I had stopped growing mm. and I needed this. So I was just letting go and just, you tell me whatever, you know, and I will take it in. And I was like a sponge. That you whole were. year was like a just absorbing all this knowledge. Well, we, we had a very fortunate chemistry. Um, yeah. well, there, there was 
there was an awareness in me that you were like a sponge that anything I told you, you remembered, you, you never came back to me and said, what did you say? I mean, you were like, you know, I only ever had to say it once and you would take it. And maybe because I'm an actor or whatever, but I have a, in my head, a Wendy construct (laughs) when I'm drawing that tells me when I'm doing it wrong. (laughs) I live in your head as a a shaking finger, do I? Where's the line of beauty? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. But I do, I remember being fascinated at the time because how it was difficult for the first few weeks for you to translate what's what became natural to you. It's like, how do I teach something that I do without thinking about? Yes. And then it's almost like you had to, to speak sub to your subconscious in symbolism yes. and figure out how to translate that into words that can be understood. Yeah. And the problem with art, it's almost transcendent. You know, it almost doesn't have an explanation. And so to you, to be able to find words, you really have to speak in poetry most of the time mm-hmm. to, to explain. But I got your poetry. Wow, that that is profound. Uh, but the thing of it is, again, it, it was the dynamic between you and me. Mm-hmm. You got the poetry not every student possibly could. It was just an extraordinary timing that brought us into each other's lives at the right time yeah. to do troll games and soul names. Do you feel, I mean, our relationship is not much different than the first time we met. We seem to recognize each other right away. Time goes away. You know, I look at you, that's the same face I've been looking at for 20 years. You're no different. Yeah, and yet, I am. Yeah, but, you know, this is, this is my sonny, this is my brother, yeah. you know. Yeah, that, so, was, that was family from day one. Yeah, yeah. So there is, there is definitely something uh, spiritual going on here. The second time we met was at Wizard World. Yes. And Richard wanted to take you and me to his favorite Italian restaurant out there in knows Italian restaurants. <laughs> it was amazing. Um, and then I would, you you asked me, or maybe Richard asked me, what the first comic book I ever read was. Yeah. And I said Fantastic Four, uh, number 43, which was the first real encounter with Blastar, the living bomb burst. And you, just out of the blue, put your balled your hand into a fist and said, I have never formed my hand in the form of a fist before, but now that I know the way of it, batoom! And I just stared at you, and Richard goes, uh-oh, he's in love. <laughs> <laughs> well, then, of course, because the blast, that blaster story was really about my beloved Triton. Because right. there's tri- Oh, right, Triton's. There's tri- that, it was Triton who took that blow. And he was injured. And he was injured, and, the fan, and Reed Richards had to save him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but it, it, Triton says, uh, I, I may not have the strength. But I will do what I can to to hold you at bay, so right. that my friends. That's can Krillin's do. job all the time. There you are. I know I'm going to die, <laughs> but I got to buy my friends a couple of seconds. Buy your friends some yeah. time. Yeah. See, now I've always gone for heroes like that. Yeah. Heroes who may know that they have limitations, may, may even be afraid, but they do it anyway. Yeah. You know, because Triton of, of all the Inhumans, Triton was the most vulnerable. He he was vulnerable out of water past a certain As the thing point. said, he only has that nutty air gun. <laughs> exactly. But he was the one that Black Bolt chose to save Reed in the, uh, what what's it called, the negative zone. Mm-hmm. And and Crystal was the one that observed. He's, I, you know, I thought it would be someone else, but I see now that's the only possible choice because 
the negative zone was like a great ocean right. of infinite space. And Triton, home. Triton could navigate through that mm -hmm. and find Reed. But I, I just couldn't believe that not only did you know <laughs> the first comic book I had read, you were able to quote it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my joy <laughs> at that moment to be able to say, you know, now that I know the way of it, you know. But, well, again, it was Jack Kirby, oh, yeah. who's my other sensei. My, you know, yeah. as, as you well know, Tezuka was my Eastern sensei, and Jack Kirby mm -hmm. was my, you know. And, uh, and there's such an obvious oh, melding of those two in your artwork. Of what I learned from Jack, and he would never cop to it, you know. He didn't know he was my sensei. He didn't think that a career in comics was appropriate for a young lady. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, you know, but... I didn't care. It didn't crush me. I mean, I know that there are other people, and, and particularly a young woman maybe at that period, yeah. going to meet her hero, right. telling her, you don't belong in comics, and if I ever catch you in comics, I'll spank you. Yeah. You know, I can imagine that, that there... That could be crushing. That could be crushing. Like, oh my God, he hates my work. I didn't take it that way. I took it as a compliment. Yeah. What he was telling mm -hmm. me was, your work is fine art. Right. It, it doesn't, doesn't belong, belong in, comic in comics. You know, and comics is too cutthroat a career anyway. You told me you made him blush a couple of years later when you were in comics, and you said, I'm ready for my spanking. Oh, every time we encountered him <laughs> at a convention, you know, I'm ready for my spanking. <laughs> and, you know, typical Ben Grimm blush. You know? <laughs> Jack Kirby, what a hero. Oh my gosh, yes. I mean, and he never, there were so many times he never knew it. Yeah. You know, he uh, he certainly could relate to young, aspiring male comic artists. Oh, yeah. And he was, I don't know if he ever actually taught. I, I, I never saw a chalk talk of his. I don't know if he ever gave one. I, I don't know if that was his personality. Well, but I know he gave encouragement. He, he really encouraged me. When I first started really? self-publishing, and Billy, a writing partner of mine, and I were in uh, Comic-Con. Mm -hmm. This was back when there was only 20,000 people at Comic-Con. <laughs> maybe maybe 20,000. Yeah. But they said, uh, Jack Kirby will be signing autographs in aisle 93 or whatever. So we went, what? And we just left the table. We ran down there because we knew it was going to be a huge line. And it was pretty far away. So we are trying to get there first. Yeah. When we got there, there's nobody there. Yeah. There was a period, and later Jack, uh, when the nostalgia craze started kicking in, he, was, he went out on top. Yes, but he did. But there was a period was... when they just forgot about him. Totally, and that's when he went to D.C. He and it was just me yeah. and Billy and Jack Kirby. Uh. And he was just like, like, oh, delighted to see us. How are you? You know, And, and, I, and I told him that I'm a comic book artist, and I showed him my comics. And then we see this... Uh, it's a nice, expressive style you got here, kid. And he's like, uh, hey, don't let anybody ever tell you how to draw, see? <laughs> <laughs> that was Jack. Yeah. Now, now, you need to back up because mm -hmm. there are some people who don't know about Mr. Average. Oh, that when you're talking about the you comic were, book black and white boom that was taking money from your business, I was one of those people. You were one of those people. You were a, you were a pioneer yourself in independent. Comics. We we did a, we did a book called Mister Average uh, for a couple of years, and uh, it, it got written up in the Comics Journal, and mm -hmm. it had a nice grassroots following, but it never really took off. Mm. Uh, not not enough that I could afford to keep doing it. Yeah. So I had to go back and get a real job. <laughs> well, a real job mean I was drawing portraits and caricatures. Yeah. That was my real job. But you were also <clears throat> acting. 
Yeah, I would, I would do acting and, and yeah. occasionally getting paid for that, but mostly doing that because I loved it. Yeah. 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 Boy, you were a bohemian. I was definitely a bohemian. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 that's what brought you to San Diego Con, and yeah. you had you had a booth with your yep. partner, and and uh, we we always did well at Comic Cons. Yeah. Mean, but we we considered well at that time that if our plane tickets and our hotel and everything's paid for by the comics we sold, success. Oh, many. If we people, break even, success. Sure, many people thought that way. We did too. Yeah. You know, if, if we if we can take care of our expenses. We did the same thing in New York. I don't remember the name of the convention. I don't know if it's around anymore, but that was our first convention was in New York. That might have been a Suling Con. Maybe it was. Yeah. And then uh, this was in 1990, I think. Oh, no. Uh, yeah. Let's see. What would that have been? Could that have been a Creation Con? That sounds familiar. Creation Con. Right. And I remember that we we actually made a little profit, you know, like maybe a couple hundred bucks. But we were like on top of the world. And Billy had taken a picture of me after the first day laying on the bed with all the money that we made that day all over me, <laughs> swimming in this cash. <laughs> Might have been $300. <laughs> hey, at the time, but don't knock it. That was an amazing amount of money for us at that time. Yeah. And uh, that was a very cool experience. But um, I just, I remembered having to go to these conventions and hawking my wares, yes. literally like, Ladies and gentlemen, step right up. Get the comic book of your dreams. Are you tired of superheroes? You want something interesting to read. And uh, What's your strongest memory of that encounter with Jack Kirby? My strongest memory is him taking my book mm-hmm. and actually absorbing it. Yeah. And looking at what the strength is yeah. of it and telling me what the strength is. Now, did, and, he complimented you on your inking, didn't he? Yeah. He, he, said, he said, you have a nice, solid inking style. Yeah. And you have a very expressionistic style. Yes. And so when I was looking at this, yeah. So I knew that emotionally I can convey it in a line. And that's where my strength is. Mm-hmm. Even to this day, if I, if, if my, my proportions aren't exactly right, my strength is in the expression yeah. the, the, of the actual the emotion of the line. Well, I take <clears throat> what he told you as a compliment because didn't you tell me that that my inking style was an influence on you? Yes, it was. In in producing <coughs> Mr. Average? You and uh, Will Eisner, I remember looking at the time, yeah. you know, and when I decided to be a comic book artist, I picked up the old Elf Quest and the old uh, Spirits and stuff like this, and I would see, see on your, yours especially, with like, almost a perfect balance of black and white on a mm. page. And I told Billy at the time, I said, it's checkerboarding. Yes. And, and and he said, what? I said, yes. checkerboarding. That's my new uh, goal. Is harmony. To check- Har- yes. Harmony. This between- balance between light yes. and dark. Mm-hmm. And he said, he said, well, why is that important? I said, because if there's not enough black in there, your eyes won't be absorbed into it. And That's the black so true. draws your eyes into it. And I remember just realizing that at that moment, looking at ElfQuest. So from then on, I was like, okay, balance your blacks and whites, you know. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't so much... It was very much just that. It wasn't like thought out as well. Like, uh, what's a good planning for this? Of how, what the best way to use this? It was just make sure you have black and white. Mm-hmm. You know, it took years of drawing before I was able to manipulate it mm-hmm. in a way that's much more uh, emotionally uh, effective. Yeah. Well, Joe, whatever mm-hmm. was there, Jack saw it. Yeah. And uh, that's that's something you can keep with you all your life. That Jack Kirby. Yeah. Will Eisner saw it, too. Well, you know, what's interesting, when the name Will Eisner comes up, I mean, this this may shock some people 
I mean, due to his fame and due to his... Oh, you've told me this. Almost, it shocked me, too. Almost universal worship in the comics industry is, is Will Eisner, uh, I, I have no better way to say it, was a null and void in my uh, artistic... We should air this after the Eisners. <laughs> <laughs> in, my, in my artistic influence. This one affected you at all. I simply never came across his yeah. work. Yeah. I would. I my goal was to absorb as much influence and mm-hmm. and to discover and find and collect as much manga as I could and see as much anime as I could. And then I had Jack, and and through the manga and anime, I had Tezuka. And those. That's what set me on fire. Was yeah. was that East West combination? <clears throat> yeah. And for some strange reason, I simply never encountered, never even really saw. Well, Eisner's work. well, Jack came from his studio, yeah. so make, you had the best of what came from Eisner's studio, probably. And also, Jack was much more clean. Yes, his line works were tight. Yes, and and Eisner is not very loose. Eisner's, Eisner's all, organic. Yes, I mean it, it was only much much later yeah. that I I looked into Eisner's work. I cannot say, and again, this is blasphemy. I cannot say that I have ever been a real fan of Eisner, and I can't explain why. Yeah. He's a great cartoonist. Yeah. His greatness is obvious. I cannot say why it doesn't speak to me, but then there are people who can't say why my work doesn't speak to them. Right. And that's fine. Mm-hmm. That's fine. Not all art mm-hmm. speaks to all people. Well, Eisner was one of, definitely one of those people that had that balance of black and white. Yes, he does. Especially back in the spirit. Yes, the stuff he did in graphic novels, he used blacks a lot less. Yeah. It was more of light. And and I had trouble getting into his artwork and his later stuff. Oh. Like, the spirit, I was just in love with. I had, I, had uh, I think it was Kitchen Sink put out several re, uh, reprints yes. of his comics in black and white. Yes. And I had every one of them. Yes. And, uh, and I would just, which is, any artist who was good in black and white, that was, that's who I was drawn to. Yeah. And I color kind of annoyed me because <laughs> it got in the way yeah. of what I wanted to see, which was the line work, you know. Yeah. And I, I, I can see why if you're not into the the drawing itself, or not as into it, you just want to read a story that's a movie and a comic book form. The color is a very important thing. Well, it, it's so interesting that you became the, the only possible colorist for yeah. Final Quest because your emotional connection to Elf Quest made you understand the nuances of the black and white art and what just to, instinctively and how not to mess it up and how, well more than that how to enhance it i mean you your your technique of putting the uh, the theatrical lighting on one side of the face in a contrasting color you know if you were if you were coloring lita in her beautiful dark golden brown skin and then you put a contrasting turquoise or green Those light on favorite it. moments oh lita's God. skin and ember oh. skin oh yeah when the Ember was in that candlelight when she was captured, yes, I, I had a blast coloring. It. Oh, and it was obvious. I mean, the co- the color work you did all through Final Quest is so theatrical. Mm-hmm. It's as if you were lighting it for stage. Well, I've said this at a lot of conventions when Elf Quest comes up that um, I'm a colorist who doesn't think that who likes Elf Quest in black and white better. <laughs> <laughs> Colors from, and I'm also a guy who's drawn Elf Quest who only wants Wendy to draw it. <laughs> I am a living hypocrisy. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're a living um, 
what's what's the word for two things at once? You're a living paradox. <laughs> Not a hypocrisy. That's a nice way to say it. You're a living paradox. <laughs> but it's like, okay, damn it, if it's going to be colored, I'm going to color it then. Make sure it's not messed up. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you're, the way you took care of Final Quest, um, every page is a treasure. I flipped through it, and I, I just see the love that you put into it. And, and That was definitely a labor of love. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's not. It, it it isn't a usual thing for a creative partnership in comics to last as long as ours has. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm always I'm sword ready. You know, just <laughs> first of all, get me this. <laughs> you once made an an analogy to King Arthur, I think, mm -hmm. uh, in my studio. Yeah. And you you compared me to King Arthur, and then which of the knights were you? I'm personal. I will, you're go, personal. I will go out on the quest and get whatever you need. Yeah. Yeah, just send me. I'm ready to go. Yeah, you're not Galahad. You won't go out and die. No, no, no. no. I'll, <laughs> yeah. I'll survive. You'll survive. I'll make sure that that happens. You'll yeah. come back. So it might take longer for me to get back Well, because i got to make sure I live. It was Percival who brought the grail back, not, not Galahad. That's true. Galahad got to the grail, and then he transcended. Yeah. But Percival brought the grail back. It's interesting that Percival sounds like persevere. Yeah, and and uh, that's that's the key, I think, to any success is just keep keep knocking at it. So, so should I call you Percy instead of something? You can call me Percy. <laughs> I'll take that. <laughs> you don't mind me calling you Arthur? No, you call me Arthur. No, you call me Art. Artie. <laughs> I mean, that's appropriate. Yeah, I'll call you Art. <laughs> Art and Percy. Art and Percy. That's the name of our podcast, the Art and Percy Show. <laughs> the Art and Percy. <laughs> Well, have we rambled on long enough? I think so. I think this is a treasure for both Dragon Ball Z fans and ElfQuest fans. Yeah, this was fun. It was tremendous fun. We'll do it again. All right. Thanks, guys. Okay. Bye, guys. I hope you love this as much as we love doing it. Shade and sweet water. Kamehameha! <laughs> <laughs> this is where we get ridiculous. <laughs> Well, that's it for another episode of the ElfQuest Show podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate it and leave a review on iTunes or whatever platform you use to listen. It really helps get more exposure for ElfQuest. Join the discussion about this episode and all things ElfQuest on Facebook in the ElfQuest fan group. You can also follow ElfQuest the official page there, and on Twitter, follow at ElfQuest, and Instagram, follow at ElfQuestComics. Head to ElfQuest.com for links to all of these social media groups and to read free online comics. Get official ElfQuest merchandise, read hundreds of character bios, make your own cool ElfQuest avatar, and tons of other amazing ElfQuest stuff. ElfQuest is published by Dark Horse Comics in both print and digital editions. Visit your local comic shop or bookstore and ask for ElfQuest. Or head to digital.darkhorse.com or comicsology.com for instant downloads. Until next time, shade and sweet water. <laughs> <laughs>